of The Real Real, I'm Julie Gilhart, President of Tomorrow Projects and Chief Development Officer of Tomorrow. And I'm Sarah Kozlowski, VP of Program Strategies Education Sustainability at the CFDA. And we're excited to be co-hosting the CFDA and The Real Real Collaborative Podcast, Circle of Influence. This podcast takes a deep dive into fashion sustainability, past, present, and future. In a world still reeling from the impact of COVID and social unrest, the conversation is more urgent than ever. As fashion considers how to respond to this moment, opportunity to course correct and look to more sustainable efforts for a better future feels all the more necessary. So we ask, what will fashion sustainability look like as we get through to the other side of this moment? Gathering some of the most celebrated voices within design, editorial, education, climate materials, and NGO work, we dig deep into their perspectives on the matter and try to figure that out. Hello, and we're back with another episode of Circle of Influence, CFDA and The Real Real's collaborative podcast, which gives a deep dive into the issues around fashion sustainability, a topic more urgent than ever as the world finds itself reeling from the COVID pandemic and sizable social revolutions. I'm your co-host, Marjan Carlos, and today we're discussing race and sustainability. Far too often, these two variables are removed from one another in the discussion of climate change, but their intersection is tantamount to the solutions and answers we seek around our current ecological crisis. Access to healthy air, water, and land so often is cut across racial lines. As years of research have shown, Black and POC communities are left the most vulnerable to climate change due to racial inequities and prejudice, despite making the least amount of impact on our environment. And as the pandemic has shown, crises only exasperate these existing inequities. Marine biologist Ayana Elizabeth Johnson wrote in her seminal Washington Post article this summer, fossil fuel power plants and refineries are disproportionately located in black neighborhoods, leading to poor air quality and putting people at higher risk for coronavirus. People who who are already vulnerable, including lower income and other marginalized communities, have lower capacity to prepare for and cope with extreme weather and climate-related events and are expected to experience greater impacts. Through the discussion of intersectional environmentalism, we bring the injustices done to the most vulnerable communities to the forefront. The Black Lives Matter rebellion of this past summer prompted a reckoning through most industries, especially fashion, which has begun to prioritize the discussions around sustainability and inclusivity. But as we drill deeper in this episode, we'll discuss how these conversations must merge to create a more equitable and yes, sustainable future. And by we, I'm referring to my incredible three guests who have joined me today, all change agents within fashion sustainability, designer Tracy Reese, designer Abrima Iriwa, and the stylist and activist Rachel Wang. Each of these women has used their incredible platforms to speak truth to power on this subject. And before we jump into today's discussion, here's a little background on all three. I could go on and on about these women. They have incredible incredible uh, bios. But to begin, Tracy Reese is an American designer whose signature rich, daring colors and unique prints are crafted into joyful feminine clothing and accessories for the modern woman. Tracy Reese's design philosophy is rooted in a commitment to bringing out the beauty in women of all shapes, sizes, and colors. Tracy Reese is evolving and has pivoted toward a more sustainable path in recent years with the 2019 launch of Hope for Flowers, a responsibly designed and produced collection. 
Part of Hope for Flowers' mission is to create positive social impact by empowering women and young people through arts programming in public schools and collaboration with local artisans in Detroit. Tracy moved her design studio to her hometown Detroit, plugging into the resurgence happening there while actively participating in plans to make Detroit a modern, sustainable garment production hub. Abrima Erwia, based between Accra and New York with actress and activist Rosario Dawson, is the co-founder of Studio 189, an artisan-produced fashion lifestyle brand and social enterprise that has recently won the prestigious CFDA Lexus Fashion Initiative for Sustainability. The brand is made in Africa and produces African and African-inspired content and clothing. Studio 189 works with artisanal communities that specialize in various traditional craftsmanship techniques, including natural plant-based dye, indigo, hand batik, kente weaving, and more. Studio 189 also focuses on empowerment, creating jobs, and supporting education and skills training. And last but certainly not least is Rachel Wang. She's a New York-based stylist and creative consultant. She previously served as the fashion market director of Style.com and the fashion director of Allure, where she collaborated collaborated with some of the most influential talents in the industry. Rachel is an advocate for bringing sustainable and responsible practices into the high fashion space. And in 2017, she founded Rachel Wang Studio, where she continues to focus on bringing ethics and thoughtful representation to creative and fashion direction. That was a mouthful, but I wanted to give these ladies their flowers. Um, and I want to thank them for coming here today. And we saw the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And um, we're also dealing with the fallout of the disappointing verdict coming down um, in the Breonna Taylor murder trial. So I can only imagine how tired you all are because I definitely am tired, but I'm so happy that we're having this conversation. Um, I want to first ask how you guys are all doing. After Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, I was like, okay, let me focus on her accomplishments and celebrate her life and not be um, focused so much on not having her to fight for us any longer Mm -hmm. because, you know, she's passed the baton to each and every one of us. And that's how we kind of have to look at the situation going forward. But I think the double whammy of, you know, no charges, no murder charges being brought against the three police officers that murdered Brianna Taylor, that, you know, it's like, okay, why are we feeling heavy and sad and a little hopeless? And, you know, I think it, you know, we just have to counsel ourselves and each other and everyone else if we can and, you know, use this all as you know, motivation um, to do the work that we desperately need to do uh, going forward. We come back stronger. We keep yeah. fighting. Yeah, we definitely need to refuel. How about you too? I just feel so many emotions at the same time, so much anger. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really trying to harness that, the energy of the anger, because that that feeling has so much power behind it. And so just trying to, I don't know, go within and recalibrate to figure out how I can use that intense, intense feeling, um, and use it for something good and use it to build community and use it to spread love and use it to be kind and use it to be local, um, as opposed to just complaining and perpetuating kind of talking about negativity, um, and just kind of, 
using it to fuel myself to, yeah, find action that feels more loving and motivated, but less, I I guess, broad, broad theoretical action and more Mm. direct action that I feel like is more localized and more community-based. I, um, I don't feel shocked or surprised, I guess. I mean, it just kind of, I almost wish I did, uh, you know, it's almost a testament to, to losing a little bit of, uh, those feelings that I should have. Um, you know, like I would have almost been more shocked or surprised had it gone the other way. I would like pleasantly surprised. I mean, I'm very disappointed, but you know, it almost just reinforces ideas that you already have, which, you know, it, it cuts deeply in the sense that, you know, as I'm a black woman, you know, and the fact that somebody can just go inside your home, like, you know, this feeling of, where are we safe? Um, and where do we find, like, when I sleep at night, or the children or ourselves or our families, how do we keep ourselves, who keeps us safe, you know? And, um, yeah. but I, you know, I think we question this often. I think we've been questioning it our whole lives and within our communities, within other communities, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's, I don't feel this weight, but only because I already, I almost already knew it to be true. Mm -hmm. And that part makes me sad, you know, like it's, we're human, you know, and we should be treated as such this lack of humanity, you know, and like, and that's what we just keep seeing. It's like constant lack of like basic human rights, like basic humanity. You know, this young woman is sleeping in her home and you can just go inside someone's home and shoot them and, not be <laughs> and then try to charge her, 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 her partner and you have no justice. They didn't even want the case took forever to get even this far. Um, and it, it makes you, you know, question. But at the same time, I, I, I feel almost re- re- this kind of thing re-empowers me because it mm. makes me remember what it's why we do what we're doing. It's why we're here. You know, it's why we're doing the work we're doing because. Uh, because we need to see each other because it feels like other people don't. And we need to be here for each other. We need to stand with each other and we need to build with each other and we need to grow together and we need to get past this, this place where I guess, you know, I got past this a little while ago. I don't mean this situation, but I mean waiting for somebody else to do something for me like that mm-hmm. part, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I stopped waiting. I used to wait and I used to, I'm going to, you know, what do I, and then at some point you realize nobody's coming, <laughs> like nobody's <laughs> fixing this for you. And um, if anything, it's a learning, it reinforces, but it also is a learning curve and it's um, helped me want to continue to fight harder and to do the work that we're doing and to be in a space like this one where we can share and we can build together because this should not have happened and it should not happen and it needs to stop happening. The girl's only 26. I don't care how she is. Like it should not happen. Yeah. there's no there's no good from that there's no good from that and like you're saying it's like this has happened over and over and over again um and and the sad thing is like we're just not that shocked at like the outcome of this and and to that point of where you're saying um you talked about vulnerability you know like just not feeling secure right like who, who you know who really has our back and so you know, within the context of the subject that we're talking about today, race and sustainability, I feel like we're definitely talking about vulnerable communities, right? And and just the, and how left exposed we are, not only to outward violence, but also like just, you know, uh, 
poor access to clean water, poor access to clean air, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just concerned and I'm curious what you guys think about why those subjects of race and sustainability are never talked about because even though that's literally the basis of sustainability, which is about figuring out ways where we can all live a better life, you know, but we don't actually discuss how and, and what communities are lacking and giving them the mic, you know, and I'm just curious what your guys' thoughts on, on why there's that disconnect. Well, you know, I think that sustainability has been over intellectualized, mm-hmm. you know, and we've made it something complex and complicated and it doesn't feel accessible. Yeah. It also, you know, doesn't always feel like it's each of our responsibility um, to, mm. to strive for or maintain. And, you know, just like so many things that, you know, could benefit, um, our communities, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not taught in schools and it's definitely not taught in, you know, K through 12, no one's talking about sustainability or sustainable life practices or any of that. And, you know, part of what I really want to be able to accomplish here in Detroit is to start talking about it with young people, with youth, with children, and start empowering them, you know, for their own future and, you know, to help them help their families learn how they can play an active role in improving the quality of their lives and their communities. So, I think that education is a huge issue. And I think a lot of times poor communities already feel so burdened with just trying to live every day. There's just so much to take on. And I think asking people to do one more thing, it always, it feels like too much, you know, it's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to survive. So it's like, how, how do we talk about sustainability without it feeling like a burden and one more thing we have to do how can we you know bring some energy and even fun to the practice of you know living more sustainably and how do we how do we share that with young people you know when I was in Amsterdam last year we went to fashion for good Mm -hmm. and I was so impressed because in their the whole basement of their building there, this amazing building, of course, in Amsterdam, this vintage building. But they have this incredible classroom in the basement, the whole basement. And it's geared toward like, you know, kindergarten, first, second graders. They have classrooms come in all the time to tour and everything is simplified. It's like, okay, you don't have to put all of your clothes in the dryer you can line dry some of your clothes and that's already living more sustainably. You're using less energy. You're putting less particles into the air. The the list goes on and on. So, you know, sometimes you have to start with some basic things and, you know, this is how our grandparents lived. And, you know, in the name of progress, we've all moved away from simple life practices that are healthier for us. Everything from, you know, how we eat to, you know, I think the pandemic has actually, you know, made us cook at home, which is the healthiest thing we can do. Um, so I think we we have to go back to 
um, some simple life practices that are healthier for us and for our communities. You know, it's like simple things like even to, to, to pick up after yourself, you know, I mean, we've gotten away from like the simplest things to reuse things and not throw everything away. Capitalism has its pluses, but it has big minuses. We're living in a throwaway society mm-hmm. and all that garbage is in poor communities. Yeah. You know, so you're living in garbage. You just add some more garbage to the heap because you don't see how it's getting any better. And it's the same thing. We're talking about justice and Breonna Taylor. It's like, you know, you start to feel disenfranchised, disillusioned. You you lose hope and you stop contributing in any kind mm-hmm. of positive way. Mm-hmm. And we have got to empower our communities and our youth to improve their conditions and to fight the conditions that are draining the life out of, out of, out of our communities. So it's our job to find really constructive and positive ways to, to share certain principles and, and, and tools. Um, And that's something I'm really working toward here in Detroit. I love that. Um, I think that you're right in the sense that it's like this over intellectualization and then like certain people feel like they have proprietorship over that information mm-hmm. and like, there's no way of like getting in, but you're saying that like, you've seen it in other countries where, you know, kids who are half our age um, are, are already getting that like information coming in in very simplified terms. Yep. Um, and that's really necessary. I mean, does anybody else have any thoughts on that? Like besides over intellectualization, are there any other factors that you feel like kind of keep this barrier of entry when it comes to having this conversation around race and sustainability? You know, I was thinking about what you were saying, Tracy, and what comes to mind also for me is the, um, the way we've created as a commodity traditionally, as we were saying, you know, indigenous communities, I think, I think we might all agree have been sustainable, right? But you have to ask yourself, what is sustainability? What are we even trying to sustain? You know, mm. like, what do you want? What, do you, what does it even mean to you? You know, and so like, if you, if you, I think that part has to also be discussed. Like, what's the baseline? What are we sustaining? Are we, are we making America great? Like, what are we talking about? When we say sustainability. What does it mean? Who is great and what is it? And so if you rewind that a little bit and you agree that like you said, your grandparents or indigenous communities or you know, maybe just, just even a few years ago, all communities, I don't know, like what, what was our value system? What did, we used to talk about building products that were meant to last, right? Like not throwaway products. That was the thing. And, um, you know, so if you, I don't know, if I think about it as a commodity, you have to, cause the question was about like race and sustainability, right? Like in the intersection, I'm just thinking like how many communities were themselves commodities, right? Like they were themselves property, Right. So if, you know, the, 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 the fallacy here, I guess, is if you want to create something that can be sustainable for the long term and build this world that we would like to all live in so we can breathe and that we don't destroy our planet, we have to rewind a little bit and decide what our value system is. Right. Mm-hmm. And if it's like looking towards indigenous communities within, I'm specifically looking within Africa, but you can look anywhere in the world, including in the United States. Um, you know, you, you start to honor 
what the earth has given you and you honor the pieces you make and the clothes and the, the, the air, like you just honor everything and you want to take care of it. And then you start looking at how communities always take care of each other. We don't waste, we don't throw away. We use things to their fullest. We fix them when they're broken. We try to keep them in the life cycle as long as possible. We don't put them in the water. You know, like we start to understand how the dots connect and then we want to try to sustain that. And they've always been sustainable, these communities. But then somebody came in and decided you need to use, you need to drink, you know, plastic water that comes out of plastic bottles and plastic bags because it's better for you. And then they came back and they said, oh, plastic's not so good for you. <laughs> so, you know, don't do that, but recycle it. Oh, but there's nowhere to recycle it. But, but you know, like, where do we put it? And every time you do that, you attach another dollar because every single step there has to be commodified, you know, like it's a commodity and now you have to sell it. So now you're back in this position that becomes this weird circle, right? Where somebody yeah. is growing raw materials and is contributing, whether it's like livestock or fruits or vegetables. And then through the globalization system, they're shipping it somewhere else and then they're shipping it back. <laughs> but like pieces of it, you know, and like, and then you have to buy it for way more money than you, you know, initially um, had it for. So before you know it, the whole thing becomes a huge commodity and then it's, it just gets out of hand, you know? So we don't need all that. Like none of that is necessary or maybe we need some of it, but a lot of it we don't need. We've created this false sense of consumerism for, for items and products, whether it's food or clothes or things that we don't need you know and so like if we can rewind a little bit to to what you're saying about that even over intellectualizing it a little bit make it simple what do you need you know how do we add value how because there's nothing wrong with creating these incredible systems of technology and innovation but as a way of adding value not as a way of just destroying to sell back we don't need to do that so that's the question what are you trying to sustain if you were looking at indigenous communities and you were trying to say, let's build something that's circular, let's build something that's made to last, let's work together for this longer term, let's re-empower communities and show them that they don't have to buy expensive clothing in order to say that they're sustainable. They don't have to do anything, really. They just have to do exactly what they've already been doing, and they're going to be sustainable. And as um, what is it, William McDonough, the founder of Cradle to Cradle, says, he said to me one time, Abrima just do nothing. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? And he says, he said to me, you know, think about it like this. If something was not meant to be sustainable, meaning like, let's say ink in a book, for example, and you burn it, it's more bad. You think you're doing something good, but mm-hmm. what you're doing is more bad because you're now releasing toxins that you didn't mean, they are unintended consequences, right? That you didn't mean to do. So maybe sometimes it's better to do nothing. Or if you're going to do something, think about what you're trying to intend to do as you're doing it. So the process is, so it's built into the supply chain and it's built into what you're doing. So this is a long-winded way of saying that I believe that all of this was intrinsically inside of indigenous communities. Back to what Tracy said about your grandmother, your grandfather, your ancestors. If we can look at what people were doing and we can honor that and we can empower communities, that's to me like step one. And if and, and when you bring race into that, if people understand how they bring value, then they don't need to buy into all that stuff because mm-hmm. all of it is superfluous noise. You don't need to wait for all that. You don't need to buy it. You don't need to buy a $2,000 sustainable handbag. You already have one. You get what I'm saying? And by doing that, you then can protect your own community for the better of the world. The water supply, the trees, you don't sell. I've seen in um, Sierra Leone where they you know, mine the beaches to build houses because they need quick money. And then they need mm. roads, the whole... 
beach and then you know when mm. the storms become harder and harsher and then causes accidents and then fishermen can't fish or boats that are illegally docked out and take the fish before the fish get to the fishermen so there's no food so then they have to go do these other things you know it starts this whole backward supply chain that's very harmful and then race really gets inside because then everyone goes well that's not my fault it's your fault right. you shouldn't have right. done that oh well okay right. thank you <laughs> so you know if we rewind a little bit and maybe do nothing or at least honor what we were already doing and then use the modern world to make that better i think that we're going to be in a really really um in a really good space so i i think it's about empowering what we already know how to do and using tech and innovation in the modern world to enhance it but not to destroy and recreate and sell it back to us. Tracy, were you going to say something? No, when she was describing Sierra Leone, I was thinking, you know, or California or Florida, any of our coasts, you know, we've abused the U.S., you know, in much the same way. And, you know, I was, it was interesting when the Amazon was burning, whenever that was, I've lost track of time. And everybody all over the world was so upset Mm -hmm. with Brazil and South America in general. How come you're not, uh, how come you're allowing this to happen? It's like, because that's our our last rainforest. It's like, well, we've already used up all the Western rainforests and any of anything that was left here. And we're upset with other countries for chasing after what we've got, whatever value, you know, it's, it, you know, it, it actually has. It's like we used up our resources and we're upset with people in other parts of the world who are trying to have, you know, their own quality of life because we want their resources because mm-hmm. we've used up ours. Mm-hmm. And the hypocrisy of it all, I think, is is just, it's so, you know, it's, 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 it's really calling. But, you know, it's funny there's a, a song by Michael Kamenaka it's, and, and the lyric says, I've been low, I've been high, I've been sold all my lies. And I think about this all the time because, you know, the circle of how we are, are living, we're, we're sold these and we're, we're paying, paying for it. We're, it's not just that it's offered, we are buying into with our meager funds, you know, this lifestyle. Yeah, that is not even healthy for us. This throwaway lifestyle, whether it's bad foods or 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 you know throwaway products, or even self-image, hmm. we're buying into an unhealthy narrative and lifestyle, and we're we're actually paying for it. And I think about that lyric all the time. There's so many circumstances it comes up, and I think, oh my god. We've bought into this lie and we're paying for it with our meager funds, you know, (laughs) to continue living this lie of a a lifestyle that has been generated to, to keep us, to keep us paying in for a lifetime. Okay. I'm going to sell you this candy. You're going to, you know overconsume it and develop diabetes. And I de- I'm also developing the drugs um, that will maintain your life with diabetes. It, the list goes on and on. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, not to talk about big brands, but, you know, a lot of these companies are producing all of the, the additives and GMOs and all this crap and foods 
and pesticides. I mean, the circle, they talk about circularity. <laughs> it, it's they've, they've got you for the mm-hmm. entire, circle of destruction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it's frightening. And I think, you know, when people are educated about that, who wants to be, as my dad would say, who wants to be a chump? Because we're all like chumps to the system, you mm. know, and it's like, do you want to be taken advantage of this way? And I think it's so important for people to understand it's the same thing with fast fashion. It's like, yeah. you know, when people understand that they're keeping black and brown women enslaved because they can't quit their habit of spending their little funds on one item after another, after another, that is not made to last because the, the quality of the materials is so poor and the construction is the cheapest. And it's like, these are your people that you're shitting on, excuse my French. And, you know, you're keeping them in this system where they, they can't survive. It's not sustainable. They can't feed themselves, their families, keep a roof over, roof over their heads. Also that you can have a bunch of junk that you're going to wear one, two, three times and move on to the next item. You know, we, as Americans think we need, you know, you watch my, my favorite, you know, HGTV shows and all the young couples are going out and they want a four bedroom house with giant closets and they end up buying some house in the burbs with big fiber class closet doors and like, you know, wall to wall carpet, poor construction quality, but it has a giant closet where they can keep all their sneakers and t-shirts and fast fashion items. And it's just full. And you walk into, you know, a vintage house and it's got a closet that is probably two foot square. And that's Mm. what people needed. That's what they used. They had, you know, quality items that they either made themselves or invested in and kept. And they didn't need so much junk. You know, they weren't buying into that system. They couldn't afford to, it wasn't the lifestyle. So, you know, to, to Brima's point, this is, it's all a construct, you know, it's like, this is all a construct that we're, you know, has been erected and we keep buying into it. And we have to educate everyone, you know, so that they can make different choices for themselves so that they can be informed consumers. No, absolutely. Because I think that we don't know that connection between how if we buy a shirt from a certain place, how that affects other black and brown people and communities another place like I don't know if we make like we those dots aren't always there and not always connected they're and never never shown. never okay. shown and at least not that access of information is given to us right and and to given to marginal communities and I would also but I am curious to know about like if you can only afford a fast fashion t-shirt because we know that like the living wage is is lower than it ever has been and 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 but then the spike of like constant needing to keep up with a particular lifestyle, which is propagated through like social media or through media, you know, just media generally and celebrity culture and so on and so forth. It's like, people are just like, I just want to get a t-shirt that at least makes me feel a part of something. Like if it would feel a part of fashion or feel a part of um, the culture, you know? So like, how do we, 
don't know. It's like a weird nebulous balance. Like how do we create that balance? Circle of Influence podcast is co-hosted by me, Julie Gilhart, and Sarah Kozlowski, and produced by Hanger Studios. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review. It helps other listeners to find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening. 